Monica and I and our children uh, would like to express our deepest thanks uh, to each and every one of you for all the Christmas cards, the notes of encouragement that we have received over the last number of weeks. And uh, we just want to express our deepest thanks to you for that. And from our family to yours, we wish you a very blessed Christmas and uh, hopefully the Lord's blessings in the new year. But as Pastor Justin and I, we were have been talking about our Christmas cards recently and, and all the different ones that have come in from different styles, some homemade, some not, some religious, some non-religious. And what we have noticed on the majority of the cards is that there is an inscription on it that has become very popular over over the years, and it is this, for unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. Now, you may or may not know where that comes from, but it comes from the book of Isaiah, and we're going to be preaching from that this morning, and we pray that as we do that today, whether you're familiar with it or not, or you're hearing it for the very first time today, that the Holy Spirit is going to do something very unique and very new this morning in our hearts. And Pastor Marcel and I, as we were talking this week, one of the things that we were meditating on is just how grateful we are to be your pastors. Uh, you are a wonderful congregation uh, to serve under and to help lead. And so from the bottom of our hearts, thank you so much for the congregation that you are. And so we decided this morning that we wanted to tag team this message. And so because we decided that, that's what we're gonna do. And we decided age before beauty. All set. <laughs> That's a matter of interpretation, by the way. <laughs> Isaiah 9, we're going to be focusing on this morning. In 1741, George, Hendrick, um, uh, George Frederick Handel put these words to music making it instantly recognizable by millions around the world. This may sound familiar to you. For unto us a child is born. All right, we will stop there. <laughs> Good try. But have you ever pondered for a moment at that sentence? at the sheer humanity of that sentence of for unto us a child is born a child the king of kings the redeemer of mankind coming to earth as a baby you know God could have sent his son into the world at the age of 29 given him a year to kind of get used to life on earth and then spend the next number of years in ministry. Out of all the ways that a limitless God could have done this, he chose the route of a helpless baby. The word of God becoming flesh in the form of a tiny baby. Now, I love babies they are cute, they're innocent, helpless little people who have a way of making us older people put down our guard. When there is a baby in the room, something kind of comes over us and we make these funny faces and we make these funny sounds all to try to get this baby to smile back at us. Now, when you think about it, that is a great way for us as mere humans to enter the world. But the son of the most high God born in a feeding trough so helpless not with these halos that we see 
around his head as we see in pictures. The God who breathed this world into existence now breathed life into his very son, a small defenseless baby who filled his diaper, who sucked on his thumb and cried out in hunger. A baby who woke, up his, who woke his parents up in the middle of the night for feeding and who had to burp. A baby. You know, I remember when my kids were babies and they would wake us up in the middle of the night and Monica would go and do the feeding and then my job would come was where I had to get the kids back to sleep. I would grab the child, one of our kids, and I would rock him in my arms and they would suck on my pinky finger and I'd be shh tried to get them back to sleep. Some nights that worked out pretty good, but other nights, surprisingly, my kids were pretty stubborn and they wouldn't go back to sleep with my shushing. So I became clever and I realized that the fan on top of our stove made the same sound as my shushing noise. So I got smart. I took our child and I held him underneath the fan, turned the fan on high and rocked. Eventually it worked. And I can picture Joseph walking around with baby Jesus in his arms, shushing him back to sleep in the middle of the night. Just like you, just like me, just like our kids. And yet, he was Jesus, the Messiah, the Holy One, the one who came to save, the one who fulfills the very prophecy of Isaiah, our long-awaited king. Baby Jesus came into the world as a baby dependent upon his parents, living as a one-year-old, going through the pain of his first teeth coming in, tripping and falling as he learned to walk, trying some foods, liking some, not liking others. God sent his one and only son into the world to be fully human, yet fully God. The scripture says, a child has been born, not a man has appeared, but a child born to save. That's Jesus. For babies represent life, newness, and hope, the future, a second chance, a new beginnings, opportunity, freshness, God's promises for today and forever. That is our Lord and Savior, Jesus. God sent his one and only son into a sin-drenched world as a baby demonstrating his grace through the humanity of his son, relating to and understanding our weakness, our frailty. He understands your pain, your struggles. He understands peer pressures and the difficulties relating with our parents and our friends. Yet, he didn't sin. 100% man, 100% God, the word becoming flesh. And the time came for a baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in swaddling clothes and placed him in the manger. And the heavenly hosts, the angels appeared, praising God, saying, glory, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace on whom his favor rests. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. You knocked over, Mike. <laughs> Stuff happens. Am I on? I'm on. 
A child is born. A son is given. It seems a little redundant, doesn't it? A child is born, a son is given. Isn't that saying the same thing? And yet I absolutely love the irony of what the author, Isaiah, is seeking to highlight for us this morning. You see, in the midst of this Christmas season, we have joy and laughter and exuberance and excitement. There's there's so much commotion in the midst of this Christmas season. And yet, as I've been sharing with you in the midst of the last four weeks, in the midst of this Advent season, some of us would much rather just push the fast-forward button because Christmas is a key markation of the things that we have lost, of the pain that it brings. We look at the Facebook posts, the Pinterest pins, the Hallmark movies. It all seems so perfect, doesn't it? It all seems so, so pristine, And you look around you and you can see that everyone seems to be having such a joy-filled time. And you wonder to yourself, that's not me. What am I missing? What have I lost? And the beauty of this story in highlighting that a child has been born and a son has been given in the midst of the season in which we receive family and friends and gifts and presents and all these things that we gather in together, the key markation of Christmas is that a father willingly gave his son. I think, for instance, of what is highlighted in John chapter 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave. And then it hits me. For those of us this morning who walked in here feeling the pain of loss, perhaps a death in the family, a lost loved one, or a broken heart, we realize that God the Father stands with you. That the key for Christmas, at least for him, is not something that he receives, but it's something that he gives away. Pointedly losing his son so that his son can do the good work of setting us free. That's the purpose of Christmas. A son is born, but a child has been given. And there's also a bit of an offense that comes with this message That much like today, those in the first century Christian context, they would get this too. Because you see, within the the New Testament, when it was written, uh, the authors who wrote it were living in a day and an age and a culture of a limitless supply of gods. You would have Zeus and Apollos and Poseidon and Jupiter and the list goes on and on and on and on. An endless supply of Roman gods. And regardless of what God they were uh, serving at the time, they would always use the same Greek word. They would use the word theos. That's where we get theology, the study of God or the study of gods. So if they were talking about Zeus, they would say, Zeus theos, Poseidon theos, Jupiter theos. All these gods that they would be highlighting. And so whenever Christians or Egyptians or Romans, as they were talking about their gods, they would use the same language. But one thing that's really interesting that we find in the New Testament 
is that the Apostle Peter, the Apostle Paul, they start using a new phrase that is highlighting what Isaiah said 800 years previous. Every single time in 1 and 2 Corinthians, Colossians, Ephesians, the book of Peter, they wrote this. The God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So here's what they're seeking for us to understand, that a son has been given in order to set us free from the effects of sin and death. And he is the one true God. For unto us, a child is born, completely human. For unto us, a son is given, completely God. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And the government will be upon his shoulders. In the light of the world's political events, corruption, impeachment, the fight for nuclear power, these prophetic words of Isaiah should fill you with tremendous hope, peace, and joy. For how the world is currently governed is not how it will always be. We can rest and we can give a sigh of relief this morning that the government will be upon his shoulders and not man's. Jesus was born in Bethlehem to fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament. And this was brought about because the superpowers of the day wanted to raise the taxes of people. So everyone had to go back to their own town and they had to sign up and pay up. And this is still done in a lot of the Middle Eastern countries today. A little bit different perhaps, but yet still the same idea. This was Caesar's world. And unless you were foolish enough to go against the system, you did as you were told. The rich got richer, the poor got poorer, all in the name to build a strong economy, to provide justice, and to allow for peace. The prophet Isaiah prophesied of a new king coming in Isaiah 9. And roughly 800 years later, the apostle Luke in chapter 2 declares with a resounding yes. The new king has arrived. This child who is from the royal line of David is going to turn our political system right side up. Jesus is the new king who will show true leadership by getting down on one knee and washing the feet of his followers. Jesus is not just another politician who we can pin all our political hopes on and soon be disappointed by false political promises. Isaiah cries out, and Luke in his spectacular Christmas story cries out as well, it's time for a different kind of world, a different kind of king. Jesus will be different in source, different in method, different in effect. Jesus' way is the only way. And it's about this small child growing up and starting to put God's kingdom into operation, up close and personal wherever he went. You know, our world is not gloom and doom. The future is not as bleak as some people would suggest it to be. For by the grace of God, a new king has arrived that governs the hearts and the lives of those whom he calls his children to rule for in eternity. And the government will rest upon his shoulders forever and ever. Thanks be to God. Our present reality is not our eternity. For God shall have dominion over land and sea. 
all citizens of God's kingdom realm on earth. We are ruled by King Jesus. We live by a different rule than those who are not under the lordship of Jesus Christ. We proclaim that because of Jesus Christ, we are set apart and our life must be a reflection of our leader king. This reflection of our governing king begins in the hearts of every man, woman, boy, and girl, and then should be shine radiantly for all the world to see. Our governing king says that his kingdom realm on earth until our Lord Jesus returns shall manifest itself in a countercultural, right side up way of living. Listen to our King Jesus constitution for kingdom living. Blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's a revolutionary way of living under the leadership of King Jesus, totally countercultural to our earthly leadership. So thanks be to God that the government shall rest upon his shoulders. For when the great ruler returns, may all the citizens of his earthly kingdom join with those of the heavenly kingdom, shouting with joy, hallelujah, hallelujah, for our Lord reigns. And he shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful, that's a word that we use all the time, isn't it? Especially during Christmas. After, you know, a good Christmas meal, perhaps you got a big meal later this afternoon, and you eat till you're full, and you loosen your belt, and you go, oh, that was wonderful, right? Or maybe, just maybe, you had a loved one, uh, as you're gathered together, your daughter and your son-in-law, they come in the living room and they announce that they're pregnant and you all go, that's wonderful. Or maybe you're going to open your presents a little bit later and you've been so excited and you open up Aunt Martha's present and it's socks and you say, wonderful. Or maybe after a good meal this afternoon, your kids come up to you and they say, Mom, Dad, how can we help? And they say, Who are you and what have you done with my child? That's wonderful. And yet the interesting thing is the way that we use that word today is vastly different from the way that it's described in the Old Testament. You see, this Hebrew word wonderful, it's only used a handful of times. And I want to share just one way with you to help us get a picture, a glimpse of what this word actually means. This comes from a story in the book of Judges chapter 13. A story where Samson's parents, they have just been told by God that they will have a son and he will have superhuman, supernatural strength. And then they ask this question, they say, 
Who are you? How are we to worship you? What shall we call you? What is your name? And this is the response that he gets. It's up on the screen. Judges 13, verse 17. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name? It is beyond what you can understand. It is beyond what you can understand. That is exactly the same Hebrew word that we find in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. That's the concept of wonderful. You see, God, in who he is, he is incomprehensible. We cannot fully understand him, this child, this son, whose government will be upon his shoulders. We are not able to fully understand who God is. So let me just say this to you graciously and yet unapologetically. You do not need a God that you can control and understand. You need a God who controls all and understands all and has your best intentions at heart. And yet if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes we question God, don't we? Have you been there? Have you been in that place wondering, God, I don't understand this. Why would you allow this to occur in my life? Why the impeccable, impeccably cruel timing? Perhaps you even question whether God exists at all. We have questions for God, don't we? If we're honest with ourselves in, in the secret of our heart, we ask these types of questions all the time. And I, I don't want to insult your intelligence, but what is, what is being highlighted in this passage is that a God that you can fully understand is an incredibly small God. Or I put it this way, a God you can fully understand is not a God to be worshipped. This is the God that we serve. We don't fully understand him. And, and the context of this passage in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, is that the people of Israel, they have been taken captive by the Assyrians. They've lost their homes. They've lost their independence. They've lost their freedom. They've lost many of the things that they have enjoyed up to this point. And a lot of them are asking one question, why? Why? God, we serve you we're following you, we're obedient to you, but it's hard to see, you know? It's hard to see where, where God is in the midst of the uncertainty of life when he allows things like this to happen. Evil to go about unchecked and unchallenged, and we are just throwing up our hands wondering why, why? And these are the types of questions we ask too, isn't it? But the promise that is made in this passage is that God is in full control right here, right now. That's the promise of Isaiah. In the midst of your lostness, in the midst of not knowing the future, you can't see anything through the front windshield. It's full of bugs. We don't understand what's going on. God says, I am in control. If only you could see what is going to happen in 800 years. My son will come. He will die a sinner's death so that you can be set free. The God that we serve is beyond our understanding. He's wonderful. 
He's also our counselor. There's another word that we use a whole lot, don't we? When, when it comes to receiving uh, legal counsel or professional counsel or, or counseling, we use this all the time, and usually what it means is we have an exchange of goods and services. I'm going to pay you, you're going to help me, you're going to consult me in what I need, whether it's tax services or it's counseling or it's professional help, and I'll say thank you very much for the information, thank you for the consultation, now I'll go do whatever I want to do with it. You might even say 90% of the time, 98% of the time, I'm going to follow your way. I think you actually know a whole lot in this area, but 2% of the time I'm going to say, nah, you know, I'm going to go my own way. That's typically how we view the concept of counseling, and yet, once again, that's not what is being highlighted here. To say that our Lord and God is our counselor means this. As a Christian, my posture needs to be, I relinquish control. I relinquish control. I give my life to you. When the Bible say, says jump, I say how high. Because here's the thing, I serve a wonderful, incomprehensible, all-knowing, ever-present, and always serving with my best intentions at heart type of God. And so I relinquish my control to you. I give my life to you on account of being a wonderful counselor. And so scripture says, he shall be called wonderful counselor, but also mighty God and everlasting father. Mighty God and everlasting father. The Hebrew term for mighty means champion or hero. A champion is one who is left standing after the conflict is over. A champion is one who still stands when all others have fallen and all others have failed. And a hero is one who gains the respect of people because of their great and daring feat in the midst of opposition. It's a beautiful picture of Jesus, our Lord, our King. He is our champion, undefeated, and in a world where heroes or champions are determined by power of influence, by athletics, by marvel entertainment, or personal talent, we are told by Isaiah that a child, a baby who will be born, will be our champion. That is, Jesus Christ will be our hero, the one whose mighty power is unmatched. It's a pretty bold prophecy. And what Isaiah prophesied, the New Testament fulfills over and over again. The Son of God would be the power of God. He is the power of God. Isaiah's prophecy comes to reality. But also the words of Genesis 3, he who is Jesus Christ will crush your head, which is Satan's, and will strike his heel. 33 years after his birth, Jesus would face betrayal. He would face beatings. He would face a torturous death on a cross. And with his final blast breath, he would yell out to his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And with his final cry, he gives out a loud scream and he gives up his breath. And he dies. The devil and all his demons 
They would have been rejoicing and they would have been celebrating over the lifeless body of Jesus. His body was removed from the cross, laid in a grave, and the grave was sealed. It is finished. And the devils rejoiced. And then the Father comes and he breaks up the devil's part and he says, You have not won, Satan. You have not won. Watch what is about to happen. And the lifeless body of Jesus will be the power of a holy God. The dead shall rise. Jesus walks out of the grave, conquering death once and for all. All seems to have gone dark, but Jesus, but God, ushers in the light of the world. Jesus Christ, his son, our champion, conquering the finality of death once and for all. What a mighty God, mighty to save you, mighty to save me. Oh, what a savior. How fitting it is that he be called mighty God. And then it goes on to say that he will be the everlasting father in almost the same breath Isaiah states that for unto us a child is born in the same breath he goes and he shall be called everlasting father. As Charles Spurgeon stated in 1866 at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, oh, how complex is the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. The name Everlasting Father means that Jesus Christ, this child that was born, will be and is the Father of eternity. Now let's be clear. Isaiah is not teaching about the Trinity. This is not a lesson on a Trinitarian theology. What Isaiah is doing is teaching us something about the character of the Messiah, the qualities of his nature, the attributes of God in Jesus Christ, his son. The baby that is born will be the father of eternity because he will be with his father, sitting at the right hand of his father, the, third, the first person in the Trinity. Oh, how complex is the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the term father can evoke so many different emotions in people. In this room this morning, the term father can bring up memories of a loving daddy who walked with us, who loved us, who stood beside us, who who unconditionally supported us. But for others, the term father can bring memories of abuse, of loss, of abandonment. It can be filled with a longing to have that, that perfect Mr. Rogers type of a father that you've never had. And for this reason, the term everlasting father can be a turnoff to following Jesus Christ. It can make one question why Jesus would really be any different than our earthly father. I get that. But here's what you need to understand. Jesus, as son, as everlasting father, is the fullness of his father, who is almighty, who is the holy God, and who is relentless, relentless in his love for you. Being fully man and and fully God, Jesus lived out the perfect reflection of a loving father, and he says to you this morning, and he says to me, come, Come, all you who are weary, come, and I will give you rest. Our everlasting Father will not leave you. 
He will not abandon you. He has adopted you as his own and as his child. He is your last everlasting father forever and ever. And it shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. Perhaps that seems like the most illogical of words to describe Jesus. In the midst of war, in the midst of terrorism, in the midst of famine, in the midst of children sold into slavery, tragedy, violence, Prince of Peace. In a world where there's so much violence and hurt and pain and destruction, how, how does that work? That we serve a Prince of Peace because last I checked, Jesus Christ, he already came. He was born, he lived, he died, he rose again, he ascended, and we've still had a whole lot of the same things. A whole lot of brokenness and death and dying and disease. So when we encounter our, our friends and our family members, co-workers, neighbors who, who don't know Jesus, and they question you, <laughs> you read an antiquated book about some guy who was born 2,000 years ago. He's the Prince of Peace. How's that working out for you? Because last I checked, there's still a whole lot of destruction going on. How can Jesus be the Prince of Peace? You know, the Apostle Paul was faced with a very similar question when he wrote his book to the Romans. And so if you have your Bibles open, I, I want you to join me. Um, you're probably in Isaiah. Start turning to the right near the back of your Bible to Romans. Romans chapter 5, starting at verse 1, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then Romans. Romans chapter 5, starting at verse 1, wrestling with a very similar question on how can Jesus be our peace? How can he be our hope? And Paul says this, Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ for whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that our suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character. Character produces hope. And our hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Because you see, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How is he the Prince of Peace? Scripture says that he is the propitiation. There's a word we never use. What does that mean? He is the advocate who appeases the just wrath of God. That we, in our own brokenness, in our own foolishness, we fall our own way. And in and of ourselves, we can't save ourselves from our own predicament. And Jesus Christ, he comes as a babe, but then he grows and he goes to Golgotha, the land of the skull. And there he willingly dies in our place. So that one day when we stand before the judge, just before God the the Father throws down the mallet and he says, Justin, you are unclean, and on account of that there will be eternal separation, Jesus will stand in my way, and he will say, do not look at the imperfection of my son, look at the perfection of me. Take my credit and put it on to Justin. How is Jesus the Prince of Peace? In the midst of war, in the midst of famine, in the midst of brokenness, in the midst of decay, and in the midst of death, Jesus Christ came so that we could be set free from it. And it's for that reason that every single time we look at the concept of death, it seems so final, doesn't it? When we look at Jesus, we realize that death is only the first day of the rest of our days. And we have this picture in our mind that when we return in glory, we will sit at the banquet feast of our Lord and there we will celebrate and we will have joy and every tear will be wiped away from our eyes and there we will have peace for eternity. And that's why Isaiah ends the way that he does. Chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But get this, verse 7. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. There will be no end. We serve a kingdom of God that does not end on account of Jesus, on account of what he has done. And the only question left to answer is, will we accept this gift, this free gift that Christ has given you? What shall we say? Amen. Marcel, would you pray for us? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, who came to this world as a child. In all of its humanity, yet fully God, to save and to redeem us. And Father, we thank you that he is called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. And Father, we pray that as we heard Isaiah this morning again, Father, we pray that it'll be renewed and refreshed in our hearts so that we can leave here excited about the coming King. Father, we pray that we will be able to come face to face with the Messiah 
that it'll be true for us, that it'll be reality for us. And for those this morning, Father, who are hearing about this for the first time, who are, who are coming face-to-face with this story, Father, we pray that you are going to soften their hearts and that your Holy Spirit is going to do a work on them and they will receive the gift of salvation today. Father, we thank you and we praise you that you are God and that your love and that your fatherhood lasts for eternity. In Jesus' name. Amen.